gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, sorry if I'm a little sniffly or discombobulated this morning. It's only because I'm sniffy and discombobulated. Long story, very short. Um, I had to get my daughter to a plane at 6.15 departure, only to find out that later it was delayed until 10. So I had to wake up at 4.45 to get her there and then... I had hoped to be able to sleep when I got back, but um, no luck. So here we are. Also, thank you for all the well wishes and concern and all that. I am really just a 10,000% better than I was. Um, I've discovered that there is, you know, an unofficial brother and sisterhood um, of, there's an unofficial tribe of victims of various forms of nasal and septum surgery out there who have, many, many stories of suffering and commiseration that I've heard from. I mean, friends of mine I've known for 20 years, I had no idea that they had had their schnozzles operated on in similar ways. And um, for those of you who have not had this kind of surgery, um, I have good news and bad news for you. For the most part, gleaning from lots of conversations now, if you have the operation, I'm talking about septum surgery, sinus surgery, all that kind of stuff. Um, if you have the operation, you know, in a planned and orderly way, not in terms of like some emergency thing where you're on a bus or something like that. Um, it's really not that bad. The whole thing, you're knocked out. It's not super painful. You wake up, you're not in a crazy amount of pain. The downside is, is that the pain and the discomfort, it's amazing how, Sure, there is some line in some medical textbook or psychological textbook that talks about the point at which discomfort actually becomes pain um, just because of the overwhelming nature of it. Friend of mine sent me a thing uh, the other day about how apparently some businesses, I don't know if it's true, the, the, the thing looked true. Some businesses, in order to curtail the tendency, particularly of dudes, to just hang out on the throne in the men's bathroom during work hours. They've started developing toilets that are on a slant so that you actually have to use your leg muscles to sort of stay on target as it were. And that this will cause leg strain after five minutes. And it's a way to sort of hurry people up. And maybe in some, one of the engineers for that, there's some point about the, the discomfort pain nexus you know, threshold. Uh, but it was going back to my schnoz. It was just so terrible. And I will spare you all of the gory details. We talked about it a little bit on the AMA episode. I'm now feeling kind of more under the weather. Um, I think just because the, the initial euphoria has worn off and I now just have this sort of constant sinus headache, which is, a thousand times, 10,000 times better than what it was prior to getting these things, these splints pulled out of my nose, but it was a stressful week. DeSantis's rollout. So like I missed it. I went to a friend of mine's um, birthday party. Um, 
and missed the rollout. And as my wife and I were going back in the car, we were getting the reports about what a disaster it was and all that kind of thing. And I don't know. I mean, I wasn't there for it. I didn't, you know, those, um, it's like George Costanza talking about, you know, it's a long 30 seconds to wait for the conditioner in your hair. When you've got a high stakes media rollout thing, every glitch seems really, really disastrous in the moment. And I'm not saying that as comms events, you know, go, it wasn't disastrous, but it's, I think it's, it's more disastrous for DeSantis's comms team than for Santos himself as a candidate. I think it's, it's more of a problem for Elon Musk that makes him still look not ready for prime time technologically for Twitter, which is not a great look for a guy who builds rockets and electric vehicles that can go a hundred miles an hour. Right. I mean, you, you have a really profound investment in the perception of your brand of being uh, glitch free and to squander that some of that brand on Twitter, which itself is a squandering of Musk's time in general. I know I made this point before, but it's really kind of amazing how how metaphorical um, Musk's takeover of Twitter was insofar as it has been an argument among, um, you know, Twitter haters and Twitter lovers and people who love to hate Twitter, which I'm sort of more in that camp um, uh, to say how it's a distraction from more productive things. It's a distraction for our culture, for our politics. It's a distraction for our children along with other forms of social media. It's a distraction from human relationships. It's a distraction from touching grass. It's a distraction from all of the meaningful things in life. And here's Elon Musk at the forefront of the effort to make us an interplanetary species and to run the transition from uh, uh, fossil fuels to electric vehicles, which I'm not wholly down for. I'm just saying it's a big thing, right? And he does wants to have tunnels with boring machines that move people around more quickly. And he's doing all of these like very Randian, you know, city on the edge of tomorrow kind of, we'll all have dirigibles kind of historic stuff. And because he got addicted to Twitter, um, he, first of all, threw away tens of billions of dollars, but also threw away big chunks of his persona, his profile, his brand, and most importantly, his time. And so it's funny. It's like Twitter is like, you know, both literally and figuratively like this distraction for our lives in all sorts of ways. And then the guy who supposedly symbolizes the future of like jetpacks instead of tweets gets ensorcelled by Twitter itself. Right. That was the whole Peter Thiel thing about we wanted flying cars and instead we got 140 characters or whatever. Well, like Elon Musk was the flying car guy. He was the persona of that. And um, he got seduced by his fans and by um, a dumb app. And and it's sort of been a vortex for um the DeSantis people as well. And so that's sort of what I'd say about it is I think even if it went perfectly, like I was saying some of this on the, the dispatch podcast yesterday, but like if it had gone perfectly, I just still think it was a kind of a dumb idea um, to do uh, his announcement on Twitter, um, particularly audio only. Um, it just would have been so much better to have a big honking uh, crowd 
diverse crap Florida crowd where um, they're all cheering. They don't have to be paid to be there, all that kind of stuff. Um, where his scripted jokes would make him seem funnier than he really is, where his scripted schmaltz would seem, make him seem more empathetic than he really is. And instead, to do this very, very, literally very online thing in the sense that like a lot of normal Americans could not figure out how to even find Twitter spaces. I don't, I don't know how to use Twitter spaces. Um, and to take planted questions from, you know, Chris Rufo and, and, and Dana Lash and all that kind of stuff. I think it does speak. The glitches speak to Musk, the, the desire to do it that way speaks to the coterie of people around DeSantis in a way that would make me nervous if I were a big DeSantis booster. Um, but I think that, you know, I don't know. There's the, the, the one last, so one last thing on the announcement, which I think doesn't get as much attention in the, for the fish don't know they're wet kind of thing. A lot of the people that we've heard from. So, so first of all, two points on this. This is what I want to say at the beginning. Uh, first of all, if you are experiencing anything in the moment, everything that goes bad is more excruciating um, and feels and the time moves a lot slower. Um, there's actually neurological reasons for this. This is like when like, you know, that phrase where everything seems to, everything seemed to slow down when you're going into a car accident or something like that. Um, that's a real neurological brain thing because your brain has hard drives and I am speaking entirely metaphorically and, and, um, and without scientific precision, but I'm pretty sure I'm right on this on the science. Your brain has hard drives and it tends not to record a lot of the stuff that you don't need to remember. Um, I can't do the whole RAM versus ROM memory kind of thing, but um, like most people in this audience have gone to, let's say the bathroom 5,000 times, 10, I don't know what the right number is, but it's thousands and thousands of times. And you can probably not remember more than a handful of them. And it's only because they were either very recent or, um, something different weird happened that got them filed in a different place. And similarly, um, but like, I guarantee you if like the time a boa constrictor came out of your toilet, that's one of the times you would put in long-term memory in your brain. And when you're, it's sort of like on your iPhone, when you're recording video in slow-mo, the stuff that you're recording seems to move slower on your phone and it's because you're just recording vast amounts more data and putting it in a more secure place and so your brain literally sort of takes in information slower when it's a new or novel experience or it's a scary or you know emotional or glandular experience or whatever because it's taking it all in and as part of this sort of survival we may need this information later kind of thing um, I think this is one of the reasons why if you're driving to a new destination for the first time, the drive out seems so much longer than the drive back. And so anyway, the reason I bring this up is that I think that there's a thing that happens when you are in the moment of an event 
and it's delayed. It's like every time, you know, Trump or Biden or Obama would be late for a press conference that I actually had to watch. And like being five more minutes late seemed like a friggin' eternity. But if you weren't paying attention to the whole thing and you just said to someone, you know, Obama was 15 minutes less for, late for a press conference, you know, you, you say, I don't care, or that's just low, that's like him or whatever. But like, it wouldn't be a dramatic thing, but when you're experiencing it in the moment, it seems much more dramatic than it is. And I think we saw a lot of that with the instant reactions on Twitter, with the instant reactions on blogs, with the, um, and basically from anybody who had been listening. The second thing is that I think the people who were making a big deal about it. And again, I'm, I'm not, it was a, it was a stupid screw up. It shouldn't have happened. I'm not defending it, but, um, but the people who are making a big deal about it in real time or immediately after also come really disproportionately from the world of, of journalists who have a lot and politicians who have a lot of experience with live TV. And when you do live TV, every nanosecond of delay of screw up of confusion feels like a billion years. And, um, and I think there was some sort of, and I think there was some projection in some of the reactions, uh, just because they could relate to that feeling of anxiety. Anyway, on the substance, I've only seen snippets, um, about the, the Q and a session and all that. I read, um, some write-ups from friends and enemies alike, um, on it. And, um, I don't want to repeat all the dispatch podcast stuff, but it just, it, you know, the fact that they didn't talk, I think at all, or at least very much about the economy, you know, about like bread and butter issues, but instead had a sort of, um, you know, again, very online, very, uh, sort of new, right. Adjacent, um, conversations about, uh, I'm not saying unimportant issues. I mean, Bitcoin really, um, you know, the role of, uh, digital dollars and all that. I'm interested in both things to, well, digital dollars I'm more interested in than crypto or Bitcoin. Um, but, uh, it just seems like it was a, um, it was speaking, it was narrow casting rather than broadcasting. And the thing is there's so much time to narrow cast in a presidential campaign to various constituencies. Um, the time of your announcement is literally the time for the broadest casting as possible, right? It's, it's, there's a reason why there's a reason why you have more sort of generalities and, um, you know, platitudes and pieties and poetry and other things that begin with P, um, in presidential pronouncements and in presidential announcements, um, that get a lot of attention. It's because you are trying to entice people from broad and different coalitions to give you a, to listen to you more later. And, um, this didn't seem like an effort like that. I just think it was, um, ill-conceived, but also just not nearly as important as a lot of people are trying to make it out to be. Um, so what else I do think, I guess, um, we should talk about this part of it more just as a sort of symbolic thing. It's starting to show that the populism, I mean, what are we going to call it? Um, call it, let's call it populism, um, or the new right. Okay. I'll, I'll, uh, I, I'll see if I have to 
well, like let's call it the new right because I don't think all the new right people are actually populists. Um, but I think all of the populists at this point are basically new rightish. Um, I, 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 I'll, I'll think out loud. That's what this podcast is for. We'll just see where it goes. Um, the, the people who wanted a new consensus, right? This was like this weird sort of meta thing starting in 2015, 2016, where, um, broadly speaking, uh, the people who knew better, but still supported Trump anyway, did so, uh, 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 with this desire to, to smash the establishment. You can define the establishment in terms of like just simply partisan Republican terms, the Mitch McConnell people, the Bushes, the dynasties, all kinds of stuff. Or you can define it as like the intellectual fusionist consensus, national review commentary, AEI, um, heritage before the beclowning, um, um, uh, the Claremont, well, the Claremont Institute is, is different. They were not as much, they felt resentful that they were not as much as part of the consensus as they thought they should be. And so they started to lose their minds, but that's, we'll put that aside. Um, you know, the, the zombie Reaganism to use a pejorative term. Um, there was this, uh, broad coalition of disparate and divergent, um, and often disagreeable people who thought that they would benefit or the country would benefit, um, if the old order, the old dead consensus, as some of them put it, was overthrown. And, um, and I've been thinking about this a lot. I get that argument. I disagree with the argument. I mean, it, that, uh, there are lots about the old consensus that I, I had disagreements with that. Everybody had disagreements with because it was sort of like broad coalitions always have disagreements. And, you know, just to restate a point here to make it very clear, I don't think libertarians ran Washington for 30 years. I don't think that everybody, you know, was, you know, who supported Bush was, um, or supported poor Paul Ryan or all these things had everything right. Um, I don't think the conservatives had every, you know, that I don't think there was anything like a monolithic conservatism prior to 2015, but the people who were on the periphery, um, who, you know, the further away you get from relevance, the more the people you see who are in the debate, the more, the fewer dis differences you see between them. They tend to be, Oh, it's just that crowd. And they all get along and they all know each other. And they all go to the Georgetown cocktail parties. I mean, at this point, the people who complain about Georgetown cocktail parties, I think are losers. Um, at least in the senses as it works on the, on the right, because what they're really saying is I'm not invited to things. I feel left out. I have FOMO. Um, I'm resentful that all you guys got to do cool stuff and I didn't. And the thing is there wasn't all this cool stuff, right? I mean, that's the part of the problem is it's, it's a Potemkin mirage, you know, kind of nonsense thing that does double duty as, as questioning people's integrity by saying they want to be, be famous. Um, it had some cachet when it was at least a barb about, you know, conservatives who, wanted credibility with the mainstream media and all that kind of stuff. But, um, it's just not really even used that way anymore. It's just basically, um, you know, it's sort of like, you know, think about it this way. The, the 
you know, the people who rant about the globalists, right? And how terrible globalism is or is and how horrible Davos is. I've never been to Davos. I'd like to go. I'd like to see it, you know, mostly out of curiosity, but I have no burning desire to go. Um, but, you know, when you're that far locked out of something like Davos, there are a lot of people who look at it and say, oh, they must all be colluding and, you know, and, and, and forming a vampire nest, you know, because when vampires nest together, they get more vicious and they get prone to groupthink and blah, 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 blah. And, um, and you start imagining what people on what the insiders are doing without realizing that there's a lot of diversity of opinion among the insiders and they're not all that inside to begin with. I mean, I think the first or second big conversation on this podcast five years ago, whatever, was all about how nobody's actually running everything. So anyway, the reason I bring that up is that there was this critical mass of people of, of truly different points of view of varying degrees of credibility or seriousness or persuasiveness and no time to get into all the different groups, but as a, but they kind of merged into a kind of popular front and, and used Trump as this battering ram to attack the, um, the perceived, you know, uh, conservative consensus on all sorts of issues. So all these, like, you know, there are all these different groups, like the different tribes in um, Lawrence of Arabia that had to be convinced, you know, they sort of, I, I do not like comparing Donald Trump to Lawrence of Arabia, but like they needed someone to rally around to put aside their differences in order to, the, to overthrow um, the Turks. Right. And, and the sort of inside the beltway DC Republican world were the Ottoman empire, according to these guys, and that they were the, the sick man of conservatism. I'm going to keep going with this stupid metaphor. Anyway, the, the, and the thing that they all missed is that just because you, I'm not going to say they successfully overthrew the consensus um, or the establishment or anything like that. Um, but let's say for the sake of argument that, they can take credit for it or that, that the establishment, you know, committed suicide, which I kind of think is closer to the truth, but there is no conservative establishment anymore. No, no homogenous unified. Again, I don't think there ever really was a homogenous conservative establishment, but there was more consensus, you know, 10 years ago than there is today. Um, uh, the old conservative establishment is gone. CPAC is a smoldering, corrupt ruin. Um, heritage is full on populist now. Um, and, uh, you know, and Fox is at war, you know, with its own audience and in the kind of most pathetic ways. Um, and so all of that kind of, and, and the Republican party is just this enormous fecal festival, right? So like, it's, it's a mess. The old, the old regime has been in a set in effect toppled. What a lot of these guys, and it is mostly guys, um, didn't seem to think through at all was that when you and I'm speaking metaphorically here, when you topple one regime, when you topple, you know, one ruler, um, you don't automatically get to not, everyone's not going to automatically agree on what the next regime should be, who the next ruler should be. This is historically always the problem with, you know, with radicals is they think 
Well, we'll just we'll think about what comes next later. First, we got to tear everything down. It's like literally what radicalism means. It means tear things down to the roots, radix. And um, in the early days of the new era, I'm, I'm trying to. The reason why I'm keep frumfering here is I'm trying to avoid coming up with uh, phrases or terminology terminology that are that are seeding things that I don't actually want to seed while I. Um, and when I say seed, I mean C E D C E D E. Yeah. I don't want to, I, I don't want to concede, um, victories to people that I don't actually think are, were actually won or anything like that. Um, but I'm just trying to think out loud here to illustrate the point, right? That, um, just because you get rid of one regime doesn't mean everybody's going to, uh, agree on what replaces it. And so you have, at the very beginning of this, you know, Trumpy era, you had, you know, Sorb Amari going after David French. And I thought really just profoundly flawed and silly ways. Um, but you know, that's all behind us now. Um, and Sorab and those guys represented what have become known as the post liberal integralists. Right. And these are the people who want a, integral social order where all the institutions of the society are um, um, it's very much like sort of Woodrow Wilson's vision and a lot of the progressive era eugenicists visions when they would talk about political life is that you know the, it's the body politic and that all of the organs of the body need to of, of the body politic um need to work together. They shouldn't be at war with each other. Um, you know, uh, um, Deneen has this, you know, this whole idea about how the very notion of competitiveness of separateness is bad. Everything has to be holistic. Um, and I want to be really, really clear. I mean, and Deneen is Patrick Deneen is utterly uh, straightforward and, and, and honest about this. Nothing new about any of those arguments, nothing. 0.0 new. These are very old arguments and the smart people making these, I think incredibly wrong arguments are at least honest about that. There, this idea of holistic approaches and corporatism in the Catholic sense, um, uh, no, even totalitarianism, which I'm not saying that they're totalitarians in the way we use the word today, but even when Mussolini coined the term totalitarian, he did not mean it in the Orwellian or the Soviet or the Stalinist sense. Um, he, you know, his whole thing about everything um, within the state, nothing outside of the state was this very, very Catholic infused notion of, of society being this organic whole where everybody worked together, where the, the, the few and the many worked in tandem and, and had deep reservoirs of social solidarity. So anyway, I think all that stuff, I'm not saying it's all worthless um, because at at some scales, I think it's everything. Like I think that's the way the family should work. And I think that's in the local communities and, and civic institutions that should have high degrees of integralism to them. But this idea that you can expand these integral components uh, to a continental nation of 330 something million people um, while maintaining economic prosperity, I just think is laughably naive and embarrassing um, uh, and, and really pretty juvenile. 
But anyway, so that's there were the integralists and then there were the nationalists back in the early days of the Trumpian era. These were the Yoram Hazoni guys. These are the ones who said the nation state is everything. Nationalism is everything. Um, I had all those arguments with all those people. There are overlaps between integralism and nationalism, but there are not as many as as people thought there were back in the back in the early days of this stuff. Um, and uh, I'm not going to explain all the nationalism stuff um, the way I just did the integralism stuff, because I think people basically get what people are getting at about nationalism. Even if I think the self-declared nationalists have all sorts of intellectual and categorical incoherence to them. Um, but so you had the nationalists and at first they used to like do conferences together and hang out together. And, um, and during the days of the COVID stuff, you had these guys who, you know, you had integralists and nationalists alike talking about how they were going to seize upon the populist libertarianism that had been awoken by the, you know, the, um, medico corporate pharma state or some garbage like that. Um, and, uh, and that the, the Trumpian libertarian populists were going to, um, be essentially the, the shock troops to, uh, you know, implement a new political order. Um, and it was all nonsense, but like there was all this sort of enthusiasm and, um, and popular front camaraderie that came with it. And it left out the fact that the, the, the Trumpian libertarian populist types didn't know what, didn't know who Yoram Hazoni was, not in any numbers, didn't know who Sora Bamari or Patrick Deneen or Adrian Vermeule are. Well, most of them, you know, don't know who I am. I'm not saying like, oh, I'm so famous. I'm just saying that like, most normal Americans don't pay attention to any of these sorts of fights. These people were pissed because their kids' schools were closed or their businesses were shut down. Um, they weren't like, ah, yes, this is my moment to embrace post-liberal integralism. Um, and likewise, the numbers of large numbers of the like, go do your own interviews of people at, at Trump rallies, you know, and you'll find X number of QAnon nutters and you'll find a much larger number of like normal old Gen Xers, young baby boomers. Um, the old baby boomers are mostly dead. Um, and, uh, and sort of salt of the earth types and with a, you know, with a few other, you know, different categories and, and factions of people, but none of them are like, profoundly into serious intellectual ideas and to to a, a large extent if trump had been essentially a reaganite in his policies and his most successful policies were reaganite um but if he had acted like uh, a sincere reaganite with maybe a little more protectionism and a little you know uh more you know wall building and that kind of stuff all the people who show up at those rallies would still be into Reaganism. And in fact, I think most conservatives and most American, well, not most Americans, but you know, most, most normal Republicans are still into conservatism. And so anyway, what I, I'm getting far afield, but my point is to say that it's like, there was never this monolithic unified political movement that these guys, you know, the, the 
common good conservatives, the nationalists, the integralists. Um, none of these guys were anywhere close to ever being like leaders of broad based national movements. Um, but they were all convinced that they could all work together. And then over time, it's been really enjoyable for me um, to watch as it's dawned on them that they've just, they've picked a life of being members of various obscure, um, you know, uh, political activist egghead factions now at war with each other. And what got me thinking about this is I saw this just amazing tweet um, I have it open on my computer. Uh, it's a tweet thread from Sora Bamari, right? Um, and it's from yesterday. So Thursday, uh, you know, the day after the Dineen thing. And he says, I'm beginning to despair of the whole right, but especially the anti-woke formation, much as I loathe wokeism. There's no positive vision to it. It's unserious. It seems, to de- it seems designed to stave off Real populism at the level of political economy. Second tweet. The Biden White House has put forward a serious vision for a post-neoliberal order and an industrial policy. You may debate its parameters, but it's a vision. Meanwhile, the right is like, get your hands off my Bud Light. The two candidates boast about which of them is more anti-vax. The other one says, I want to burn the FDA to the ground. Yay, back to Sinclair's jungle. Um, the fantasy of restoring a government structure fit for a pre-industrial idol of yeoman farmers. The, economical, the, the economic model that also assumes a pre-industrial la-la lamb as its backdrop. Dumb. And then he goes on and like, somebody like basically what some of that stuff, reading it out loud, I realize a lot of people don't understand what the hell he's talking about. But what Saurabh wants, at least so I gather, is a vigorous right of center industrial policy. You know, I accused them of being him and his crowd of being pro-life New Dealers. And they said, exactly, that's who we are. And um, uh, and he's apparently fallen in love with the writings of John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a great writer, but a crappy economist. Um and they just, they're, they're, they're right-wing social planners and they want to be right-wing social planners and technocrats and they don't have anything like the bench to do that. Um, and they're getting annoyed um, in the way that, you know, m- there was a whole thing from Marxists back in the day about how they hated Mickey Mouse because Mickey Mouse was this distraction from serious questions about serious, you know, uh, you know, divisions of society that must be encountered with a robust revolutionary ardor. And, you know, in the 1960s, it became the sort of Frankfurt Marxist school about, you know, how, you know, industrial capitalism stays off revolution by distracting people with petty, silly distractions. And, um, and the thing that's, I mean, among the things I think is so funny about this is that Sora, you know, made his name for himself in this crowd by um, being absolutely livid about drag queen story hour and attacking and really misrepresenting David French's positions on all that stuff. And, and now he's like saying, why are you guys getting so worked up about the transgender Bud Light ad? We need to focus on industrial policy. <laughs> and I did, like, it's, it's amazing to me. 
Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so back to my point about replacing consensuses or regimes or whatever. Um, literally the story, this is like, if you were doing a survey course on sort of the story of, I don't know, regime change, uh, which is the title of Patrick Deneen's next book, um, or, uh, you know, um, how states fail, which is the title of the Mansur Olson book, but very different kind of book. Um, if you, I'm sorry, how, how the rise and decline of states was Mansur Olson. I was the, and how nations fail is the Robinson, a book. Um, anyway, distraction. I'm sorry. I'm rambling. Um, you can do any sort of survey course of revolutions, regime change. I don't know what you would call it going back to, let's say the Ming friggin' dynasty. This like one of like the major themes, if not the theme would be how when you depose or overthrow one system of government or rule. Right. And I'm not saying that they overthrow the actual regime regime in America, but what they did was this, this kind of thing is like fractals, right? It works at very small levels and very high levels. It's the same sort of thing. Um, 
when you get rid of the existing authority, um, only very rarely do you get um, a consensus around a new authority almost immediately. That is like one of these things I've always been sort of fascinated by about the whole obsession with uh, the, the, the right of succession to the throne, right? Because through very, very, very lived experience over thousands of years in, in Europe, uh, aristocrats knew that every minute there was doubt about who was next in line to the throne in princely states and England and, and, you know, France, wherever, um, every second of doubt created, um, opportunities for various players to claim, uh, authority. And this is again, like, this is like the story of politics, um, for thousands of years. Uh, you know, when we got rid of Saddam Hussein, we had this foolish notion that like we could just replace it with a new government. No different factors, factions and factors that have been buried, rose up, try to claim their own, all that kind of stuff. The, you know, there was a, we had, we had, you know, two popes more than a few times in, in European history. Um, because of these kinds of dynamics, if you go back and you look at the number of, Christian denominations that explode after the Protestant Reformation. Um, uh, you know, I, I, the Zwinglians, the Calvinists, the Lutherans, the Anabaptists, the this, the that, the whatever you can go down this. It is a, it's hundreds and hundreds of them. Some are nation based, some are do- doctrine based. It's just wild. And, but in fact, if you actually look at, you know, there is this sort of romantic Catholic notion that prior to the Reformation, there was this homogeneous consensus um, about a a one universal church. In fact, that wasn't true either. Go look at the number, like look at Wikipedia. I'll do it right now. Here's the Wikipedia page on proto-Protestantism, which I gather is Protestantism before Luther kind of broke the dam. Um, here are movements that have are have been argued as having similar ideas as Protestantism before the Reformation. Uh, Montanaism and um, Tertullian. Montanists were a sect of ascetics that were against many developments in the early church and to which Tertullian convert, converted. Let's see. The anti, oh, anti-Dicomarians. Uh, Eris of Sebast, Halvidius, Jovinian and Jovinianism, uh, with sub subcategories of Samartio, Barbentius. Um, there was Vigilantus, one of my one of the only ones I know anything about, Augustine of Hippo, um, the Paulicians, the Byzantine Byzantine iconoclasm, Claudius of Turin, Gottschalk of Orbe. Uh, Ratromanus, uh, Tondarkians, Elfric of Einsham, the Berengar of Tours, the um, Albigenises, I mean, I know you guys who know this stuff are going to be laughing at my pronunciation of all this, the Bosnian church, um, Pateraria. Um, okay, I'm going to stop here because there are literally dozens and dozens of more. Gregory of Rimini, Friends of God, God, um, 
And, uh, and of course there was Jan Hus, who I knew a little bit about because, um, Mussolini, when I was reading all about Mussolini for liberal fascism, he was obsessed with, um, Jan Hus and his uprising. And the point is, is that the, the old consensus prior to the reformation was pretty difficult to hold on to. Um, and the Catholic church was constantly looking out for heresy and, and, and there were all sorts of schisms, you know, the Byzantine church and the Russian Orthodox church. I mean, there are like, you know, it's a great bar trivia question. It was like how many churches, how many different Christian denominations recognize the Catholic, the, the Pope of the Catholic church as the head of their church. And it's like a dozen of them, um, which is just, and I'm, none of this is criticism of any kind. I'm just pointing out that like rumors of, uh, Christian hegemony and um, homogenousness prior to the Reformation are greatly exaggerated, but they're even more, but it was even crazier after the Reformation because after the Reformation, you had all of these different sects, denominations, uh, churches, whatever. Again, I'm not trying to denigrate anything or anybody um, that for a while thought that they can compete to be the leaders of the new one true faith for everybody. And then you just had sort of balkanization and conflict. And, um, um, and so now we're in this moment where you've got the sort of the, so again, it's all very long extended, um, I guess, simile, right? I, 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 I berated guy on the, on the last podcast, uh, for getting metaphor and simile wrong. And someone sent me an email pointing out that I might've gotten analogy wrong, um, which I think he's probably right. I'd have to go back and hear what I actually said. Um, but anyway, this is one long comparison, um, to, uh, this present moment where you have DeSantis who is very much on the same page with Trump on a lot of policy stuff but actually has his own sort of distinct sect of the uh, branch division following of the Republican party and of the sort of egghead, right? Um, I don't think you, I mean, I literally, I truly don't think there are a lot of legitimate intellectuals who still support Donald Trump. Um, I think it's disqualifying. There's some very smart people. I just think they've lost their minds. Um, And um, which is not to say, look, if they're, if they're making sincere, I think really dumb, but sincere arguments about how, um, uh, he's, uh, you know, the best option to beat Joe Biden or some cost benefit garbage like that. Um, that's fine. But anybody, anybody who purports to be an intellectual who makes the, makes arguments about how Trump has, is a, a serious person of a serious ideas. I just can't take seriously. Um, and I, I, will strain to take any other position anyway. Um, but so you have, you know, like in a way DeSantis comes across in at least that Twitter thing is kind of like a right wing Gramscian. Gramsci was one of the great Italian intellectuals. Who's a guy who talks about the long march through the institutions. And actually he didn't coin the phrase that that came from some, I think 1970s German radical, but he, that radical was like a Gramsci guy. And the basic idea is that if you really want to have 
influence over the culture. You have to take over the institutions of power. You have to seize the commanding heights of the culture and you have to use the state to bend the the culture in your direction. And that increasingly seems to be where DeSantis comes down on that. And that is not really Trumpism. Um, Trump is much more of your classic sort of corrupt Caudillo kind of guy who likes making, you know, uh, you know, likes making deals with his cronies and, re, you know, rewarding his, his cronies and that kind of stuff. He definitely believes in economic growth. I'm not saying DeSantis doesn't believe in economic growth, um, but um, uh, Trump's relationship to almost all of the stuff that DeSantis takes seriously was always just purely instrumental, you know, um, nearest weapon to hand bunk. And, um, and so it's interesting in the same way that you see like the, 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 the integralists turning out to be a fairly fringe segment of the, I don't want to, I don't think you can call the right a coalition anymore. Right. Um, the, it's a stripe on the, on the, it's a, it's a, it's a shaded area on the right side of the political spectrum and how big that shaded area is. I don't know. Um, and the nationalists, you know, that depends what you mean by nationalists these days, because, you know, lots of people use these words. One of the things I do appreciate about the post-liberal integralists is they are so bad at politics that they've picked a name that nobody's going to confuse for some other faction. Um, you know, it's not like they called themselves the, um, the religion is good conservatives right you know because then you who are you talking about because all the conservatives talk about religion is good one extent or the other you call yourself the the post post liberal integralists um you've nailed down you own that brand right no one's going to try and steal your brand the nationalists there are lots of different groups and people who call themselves nationalists and natcons and um it gets a lot of the more decent sort of you know nationalist uh conservative types uh into causes them all sorts of headaches because they're stuck with um an enormous number of jackasses who um use the same label as them and um but anyway what we're seeing now is just you know it's it's just a bunch of different factions contending for power and um um and influence and you know and some really care about public policy and, you know, some um, care about public policy to the extent it wins over votes for them. And um, I would not have thought that DeSantis care, you know, in when he ran for governor in, in what was it, 2018, I would not have expected that DeSantis would have been as much of a policy wonk as he turned out to be. He cares about, you know, public policy. I think that's actually the real Ron DeSantis. The fake Ron DeSantis was the guy who beclowned and humiliated himself reading, you know, the art of the deal to his kid in a TV commercial and, you know, talking about build the wall and you're fired to his kids using his kids as props, which I despised. And people say I should get over it. You know, like, well, look, I've gotten over it. I would vote for if I if I had to vote in the primary, I would certainly vote for DeSantis over Trump. I'm not entirely critical of DeSantis, but I've been critical of people who use children as props in politics my entire adult life. Why would I, why, why would I not be critical of DeSantis for it? Particularly when he was doing it to suck up to Donald Trump. Um, 
and claim that he would be a loyal Donald Trump, you know, follower of the president when he was the governor, when he was running for governor of a state, governors of states do not answer to the president of the United States. Um, but anyway, I think, I think I would have thought that DeSantis's approach to public policy was the same as his approach to MAGAism, which was, it's a position you take, um, because you think it's going to win you votes. And, I'm not sure that they think that at this point, um, because I think the way the, the way they're getting granular and the, the kinds of public policy stuff that they're choosing to do, I don't know that it's a big vote getter um, for DeSantis. I think it's the stuff that he actually legitimately cares about. It's not as sincere, as insincere and cynical as his embrace of, of Trump was. Um, I think that's interesting. And so it's sort of it's interesting how what looked like a, you know, a large, what was the MAGA faction is actually a bunch of, of smaller denominations that are increasingly at war with each other. You know, again, the nationalists and the integralists were all kumbaya in the early days of the Trump presidency. They now hate each other. Um, you have the, the guys who want, you know, actual public policy wins and results, um, uh, largely rallying to people like DeSantis um, and the people who just like performative, um, I am your retribution nonsense are rallying more to Trump. Uh, the problem for DeSantis is that, and for the other Republicans in the field is that they, there are just a lot of lazy Republican voters now who are just saying they're for Trump. Um, I don't think they, I don't, I don't think their support is that deep, but they do have a bond with Trump and they do have, um, this preposterous position that Trump is worth supporting the more the mainstream media hates him and picks on him. Um, and I ranted about that on the dispatch podcast yesterday, so I won't get into it again, but it's, um, I think it's a preposterous position. Um, uh, enough about factionalism and all that stuff. I find it, well, I mean, not enough, but, but I find it very heartening um, in part because there's a certain, I told you so complex, you know, aspect to it for me as listeners of this podcast. know, I was always profoundly skeptical that any of this stuff was going to translate into a sweeping large um, political movement that was actually going to attract more voters than it uh, repulsed. And I think that also is true at scale. Trumpism attracted new voters to the GOP, but it cost um, the GOP more voters than it attracted. And that was true in 2018. It was true in 2020. It's true in 2022. And if things keep going in this way, it'll be true in 2024. But when I was skeptical about this stuff back in those days, the scorn that these guys would heap on me, you know, these guys were all high on their, on their own farts because they had put together a conference that got 200 people. And they're like, ah, this is proof. There are millions who support us. These are just the ones who could make it here. I mean, they sort of reminded me of the, the French guy from uh, Close Encounters who's talking about how the people who actually made it to Devil's Tower to see the aliens, these were just the handful of people who um, could make it through all of the filters and obstacles um, to, to like return to Devil, to go to Devil's Tower like salmon, you know, returning to their spawning grounds. Um, these guys, they, they had this tendency of looking at, you know, my tweet got 5,000 tweets. 
uh, retweets, you know, my tweet got a hundred thousand likes and they think that, okay, that means this is a political movement, you know, and, um, it's not, you know, I mean, like this is, this is one of the great lessons you get from working at national review, which, you know, it, 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 it was in the water there that you understood that politics is always going to be a long fight. There are no total victories. There are no total defeats. Um, things come and go your way. You take your wins where you can, you take your losses where you can, but politicians will always disappoint you. And, um, and you know, the people who get worked up with their enthusiasm, no, they, this time is different. You don't understand. It's a new politics. It's a new, right. It's a new, this, it's a new, that, you know, we have the wind at our backs and, you know, I, I've been writing about, there's no such thing as new politics for as long as I've been writing about politics. It's just, there's, it's, it's, it's just politics. It's what, you know, in, in, in Omen three, when they're talking about the, the signs of the Antichrist returning, they say, you know, that the formation of the EU or the precursor to the EU was one of the signs because um, there's some line in the Bible about how the eternal sea um, and the eternal sea is supposed to be politics. And I always, that always stuck in my head because like, Politics is it, politics is the the expression of human nature at scale, and um, which is why war is politics by other means, right? I mean, it's like it's it's human beings interacting as human beings, and the idea that you're going to create new politics. I'm not saying it can never happen. I actually happen to think that you know 1776 or 1789 was one of those new moments. Um, uh, you know, that's why I wrote a book talking about the miracle. Um, because all the time prior to say 1700, um, uh, things looked more similar than different going back 2000, 5,000 years. And, um, uh, but now, you know, the dust is settling and it's dawning on a lot of people that like, no, it's like people, you know, like, like there are factions and there's just, we're all basically high level very fortunate hobbyists and that we get to make a living out of this. But you know, if that vanity fair piece is true, the American conservative, which I tend to like, I'm not trying to to dunk on them, but you know, they hailed themselves as, you know, the precursors of the, the, of of the, of this new right before we called this new right, the new right, right. They sort of were Buchanan aligned. Um, You know, if vanity fair is right, it has 3000 subscribers. Um, I'm told that compact, uh, Saurabh's joint, um, has about that many subscribers. Um, now we at the dispatch, we still think of ourselves as like a pirate's gift, right? We still think of ourselves as like our best days are ahead of us. There's still a lot of work to do. We're very happy with how we've done. Um, but we haven't, we haven't hit our goals, um, on our own terms yet. Um, and everyone's saying, oh, there's no market for what you're doing. And we hear this all the time. And that's what people told us from the beginning. Mark Hemingway had this, you know, really snarky um, line in the Atlantic when when we launched talking about how there was just zero market for the kind of thing that we were doing. Um, and, you know, he said it with great authority. Well, you know, we are doing orders of magnitude better than the American conservative and, and compact, I mean, orders of magnitude. And, um, 
and I, I'm not saying that to boast. I'm just saying that like, we're still a fairly small operation. And um, by no means do we think we're conquering the world and that we are representing the true, you know, views of conservatism as people understand it today or of the Republican Party or any of that, that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, National Review, I don't know what its current subscriber numbers are, but I'm, I'm assuming between NR Plus and, and the actual magazine, it's probably like 80,000 or something like that. That's great. That's better. You know, it's better than us and it's better than, um, you know, compact and American affairs and, um, and American conservative, all those guys combined and then, uh, multiplied by itself. And yet when you hear all these people talk about all these very online activist people talking about how places like NR and, you know, and certainly the dispatch don't matter anymore and all this kind of stuff, or, or in our case, never mattered. Um, you know, we got much bigger audiences than they do. You know, I have much bigger Twitter following than all these people who tell me I'm, you know, irrelevant all the time. And, um, again, I don't say it to say that I'm, we're so much, you know, more successful or greater or, or any of that kind of stuff. I say it to say that it's a big friggin' country where most of the people don't give a rat's ass about politics. And most people who, and a lot of the people who do give a rat's ass about politics, including very passionate people, don't think seriously about politics. And, um, and if we could turn back, if we could go back to one thing, which I've been arguing for since I first started writing is that the great thing about the conservative movement, the thing I loved about it, uh, I can't tell you how many columns I've written about this was that conservatives argued amongst themselves. They had serious disagreements about philosophy, about dogma and all these kinds of things. They admitted their priors and all of that. And the nice thing about this moment is that it maybe we're returning to some of that as a lot of these guys realize that their tribe isn't actually going to get, get to control Mecca and Medina and rule arbitrarily according to their whims, um, that they're going to have to persuade other people, um, to draw people to their tribe. And, and that's the thing I've been arguing about arguing for all this time. And I'm a little hopeful, you know, I'm a little hopeful by the, the, the shattering of the, the forces of the new consensus before they ever achieved any actual success in creating a new consensus. Um, I think that's a sign um, of progress. I mean, how long have I gone here? My God, I apologize to those, but no, I'll tell you the people who, again, the people who uh, I never hear from anybody saying you went too long. Um, I shouldn't say anybody. I rarely hear from anybody saying I went too long. I hear from a lot of people who say, you know, Oh, the, the 90 minute solo was a real treat. Thank you. That kind of thing, which I'm very flattered by. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't people who think I go too long, but they stop listening long before I've gone too long. Um, so I don't want to go upstairs yet. My dogs are going to yell at me. I talked about a lot of stuff on the dispatch podcast. I, um, now let me tell you, know, let me, let me briefly at least defend, um, part of the, Wednesday G file, which if you were a subscriber, you would, um, um, you would have read, um, I agree. It had quite a gear change where I started with this sort of mocking thing about this Pete Buttigieg interview in 
wired, which I do think was embarrassing and silly um, and utterly mockable. Um, I hadn't realized that the national, that the guys, the editors podcast had already done a whole segment on it, but um, it was nice to hear that. Cause whenever, like I was saying to guy the other day, you know, sometimes when you feel like maybe you've gone far afield, um, it's nice to um, have other people that you respect sort of have the same reactions. Um, uh, anyway, this is, this is just to some people who didn't read the wired thing or the G file, um, uh, know what I'm talking about. This is how this woman, uh, Virginia Heffernan, um, begins her, uh, profile and interview with, with the secretary of labor. I'm sorry, the secretary of transportation, the curious mind of Pete Buttigieg holds much of its functionality in reserve, even as he discusses railroads and airlines down to the pointless data that is his current stock and trade. The U.S. Secretary of Transportation comes off like a Mensa black card holder who might have a secret go habit or a three second Rubik's Cube solution or a knack for supplying off the top of his head. The day of the week for a random date in 1404, along with a non condescending history of the Julian and Gregorian calendars. Yeah, that's the total vibe I get from, from Pete Buttigieg too. But anyway, I did not plan on like segueing into this whole thing about the history of Western civilization, but um, I kind of used them as a springboard to make this, this broader point. And I think it's, it's an interesting point. Um, let's see if I can find it. Yeah. At one point I say, let me back up. Prior to the Enlightenment, the lines between secular and sacred authority were blurry. Yes, after the Reformation, hey, we were talking about the Reformation just earlier. Yes, after the Reformation, state authority and church authority were separated somewhat. But the Protestant kings were also the heads of their churches, and the Catholic kings still derived their legitimacy from the church and deferred to its authority on many things. Moreover, the church was often the seat of learning and science. The Enlightenment wanted to clean all this stuff up. Those on the right wing of liberalism wanted to have clear lanes for, for different institutions and power centers. This stuff is, the, is in the thrones portfolio, but this other stuff belongs to political authorities or the family or to private, the private sector or to the people generally. This view explains the emphasis on divided powers, checks and balances, religious liberty, family values, and traditionalism generally. The state is there to do the things the state is justly and lawfully prepared to do and nothing else. So the reason I bring this up is, uh, I, cause I, you know, I, I, I read and reviewed this Patrick Deneen book and he calls me and people like me, you know, right liberals. And I think it's a pretty crappy, um, uh, bad faith argument. But, um, I get it. And there is a, there's a level at which it is not crappy or bad faith, which is to say that, um, conservatives in the Ameri Anglo American political, political tradition, um, are, what are they trying to conserve? They're trying to conserve the ideals and aspirations of the, of the founding of the, that are expressed in the declaration of independence. Um, and that's a liberal project. 
right? I wrote about this in liberal fascism. I've written about this a zillion times. You know, American conservatism is about more than simply um, classical liberalism. But as I wrote in liberal fascism, an American conservatism that doesn't conserve classical liberalism isn't worth conserving. And there's a lot of room for social conservatism in classical liberalism. And if you don't believe that, just look at the way people lived and the way governments worked at the, in the, for the first hundred years of the American founding or the American, the American experiment. Um, there was, there was not an inherent contradiction there. Now people like Deneen and these guys say there is, and they say that, you know, the second you get Locke, like Locke's second treatise and the wealth of nations and later, you know, Hume, um, it's inevitable that you get, uh, uh, trans, you know, drag queen story hour or whatever. Um, I just think that's nonsense. Uh, but, um, so in, but in this sense, people, the traditional American conservatives, um, who like the founding, who like celebrate the 4th of July, think that we should adhere to the constitution as originally understood and as amended. Um, in the grand scheme of the post enlightenment, you know, last 300, 400 years, whatever, um, we're on the right side. I mean, we're, we're right liberals, right? Um, uh, the reason why I think it's a crappy term is because when it's used by the people who use right liberal want to make it sound like, you know, everyone from Tom soul and, uh, Rush Limbaugh and Russell Kirk and William F. Buckley and James Burnham um, and Irving Crystal um, are, we're all just basically libertarians utterly at peace with uh, social and cultural disintegration and dissolution. And I just, it's, it's, it's bad faith in that, in that sense. But um, in the broad wolf of things, yeah, sure. Okay. We're, we're right. Railbows. What did the left liberals believe in? Now, a lot of people, including Fukuyama and to a certain extent, um, um, Deneen, um, they totally defensively say it comes from, um, sort of Rawlsian notions, sometimes Rousseauian, which I would agree with, um, notions of authenticity, self-expression, personal autonomy, that kind of thing. And I, th I think they're, they're right, but I think you can go back. I mean, Rousseau is totally fair and everyone's heard me rant about Rousseau a million times, but anyway, the way I've been thinking about it lately is the, and this is what I got into with the, with the G file is that the, the left liberals, right? They wanted to get rid of monarchy um, and the rule of the Catholic church. Um, you know, the, the really radical ones at the beginning were people like, was it Diderot says, you know, the last King should be strangled with the entail entrails of the last priest. Um, but those guys, you know, particularly people like Robespierre, they were not in any way against absolutism and absolute authority of the state. They just wanted it to be ruled on rational grounds. Right. And so you have, um, um, the whole year zero thing, 
Um, Notre Dame is turned into a temple of reason. Things go off the rails when the human beings turn out to actually have uh, interests and desires that don't fit a plan. So you get the terror. Lots of people are killed. Go listen to the Revolutions podcast on the French Revolution, or at least you know the last thirty episodes. Um, and there's, there's great context for all this. But um, and so, like the way to think about it is that it's not that they wanted the the, the right liberals said, "Oh, look, you know, it turns out that um, religion is good, but religion needs to stay in its lane." Right. Religion needs to be in charge of the things that religion is in charge of. And hey, look, it turns out that like, you know, this new bourgeois class, this new mercantile class, it's making a lot of people richer and happier and more successful. Um, it's paying for the ability to get more people to learn how to read and to clean up our cities. Um, and um, it's improving the, the uh, it's, it's providing what Francis Bacon would call the relief of man's estate with new inventions. And um, it shouldn't run everything, but it should be given space to do what it wants. And Hey, look, it turns out that the individual is a pretty good judge of his own desires and hopes. Maybe the individual should be sovereign and be able to make a lot more decisions for him or herself. And really at that time it was mostly himself, but you get my point. Um, and, and so the, the right liberals believed in zones of autonomy zones of competing authority and um and what they recognized and I don't know, everyone from burke um to montesquieu right uh obviously Locke, um and and smith what these guys recognized was that when power is combined in one place it is going to be abused because there is no check there's no balance on um, the arbitrary whims of the authority or, or, you know, collective or entity that is in charge of things. When there's nobody who has the power to do anything about it, um, you're going to have very few people say, hey, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. And so the way to create these zones of freedom, these zones of liberty, these zones for uh, competing forms of authority was to actually divide the government itself into different branches, different sources of authority for different functions. And that's why you get, um, you know, Montesquieu with, and then the founding fathers, about divided government checks and balances, separation of powers and all of that. The, the left liberals of the enlightenment, um, they never were at peace with any of that. They, um, Yes, they thought that the rule of custom and tradition, never mind of the Catholic Church or of the throne, was corrupt and corrupting and illegitimate. But the reason why it was all those things was because it wasn't rational. And reason should rule all. And therefore, the smartest people with the greatest power of intellect should be the rulers. And that's what you can sort of get out of the French Revolution. Um, for a while, it's what brings you Napoleon um, to restore order and whatnot. Um, and so um, I think that this spirit has been very much central to, we can call it progressivism, leftism, left liberalism, you know, uh, 
uh, left liberals, whatever. I mean, there's a lot of diversity here. I can't paint with a sweeping brush, but I think that the this general orientation manifests itself in many parts of um, the left over the last you know, 300 years. And so one of the ones I talked about, you know, is Auguste Comte who came up with the religion of humanity where he basically want to make scientists like New- Newton into uh, secular saints. And, um, you know, you even had Robespierre talking about how um, you needed to use, cultivate the religion, religious insp- instinct in support of the state in its pro in its progress, its, its project of hyper-rationalism. Marx, Marxism, which you can debate how much it's in the Enlightenment tradition. Some could argue it's extremely in the Enlightenment tradition. And some could argue that it is like trying to be, you know, it's, po- I mean, there's a reason why all these post-liberal right-wingers like a lot of Marxist arguments because Marxist arguments are also post-liberal. Um, but what it shares with this stuff is this idea that there's one right answer that history, the study of history is a science that history unfolds scientifically that material circumstances generate politics and political realities to such a degree that you can talk about it as a scientific process in the same way that you could talk about adding, you know, peroxide and, um, I don't know, something else to make it go fizz, right? That's a scientific process. Once you understand the chemicals, you can repeat it time and time again. The Marxist approach is very similar. It says that there is this objective scientific understanding of the correct understanding of politics. And, and therefore the people with the, with the deepest and the most sincere understanding of these scientific forces, they should be in charge of hastening this process. And that's actually how that's Lenin's, addition or improvement upon improvement, uh, modification of, of Marxism is the idea of the avant-garde, right? That the party needs to be full of people who so understand Marxism that they can trigger the right reactions in society, um, to bring the rest of society along. And, um, um, and it's run through throughout progressivism. And I got to thinking about it, as I say in the G file, I'm sorry, I just want to be clear. I'm not saying that Marxism is throughout progressivism, although you can make that case. I'm one of these guys who thinks Marx's influence is less than people think it is because what Marx, Mark, Marx's ideas were versions of mental tropes, uh, uh, ideological instincts that are common to people who have never read a word of Marx. Um, and so like a lot of people say, Hey, look, look at the family resemblance between these things. This thing must've been represented, must've been influenced by Marx. And it's like, no, both of these things are downstream of this other impulse. And the other impulse is essentially, you know, as I put it a bunch of times, um, a lot of progressives think that the state, should do the things God would do if God existed. And I've always thought that there was a certain amount of um, hubris to this. So this, you know, I'm not going to get into my critique of Rawls's um, veil of ignorance thing again, but there is this tendency to um, among social planner types to say, if I were God, how would I set this thing up? And I think that one of the things that Orthodox Christians and Jews are better at 
understanding is that you can't actually know what God would do except in so far in the places where it's written down. Um, or at the very least, it's really hard to figure out what would do, God would do in a hypothetical situation because God's wisdom is infinite, infinite. And he, and he has, he just has access to more data than you do. Um, and he has actually has a lot more data, um, access to data than, you know, even in, you know, uh, artificial intelligent computers. And so, you know, that creates a certain humility in the Orthodox or this, the, the, the doctrinaire Christian or Jew or religious person that once you, it's sort of like Chesterton's thing is about once you stop, once you convince people God doesn't exist, it's not that they won't believe anything, believe in anything. It's that they'll believe in everything or something like that. You know, the quote, um, please don't send me emails about what the exact quote is. I, you know, I'm, I'm talking now for over an hour with basically no notes. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll have malapropisms. I, I know they're malapropisms. I mean, when I get substantial stuff wrong, I got no problem, um, you know, being corrected and all that kind of stuff. But like, I get a lot of email from people f who like, because I got some words wrong in a movie quote. He's like, you know, the real quote from the Godfather is blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay, fine. Like, that's great. But I know that I don't, I don't really need to be hectored about it. Um, but anyway, there's this, there is this sort of theotropic, you know, um, desire that I think is part of human nature for a lot of people. We're not just left-wing people to think about, um, you know, designing how, how to design society perfectly, um, from a drawing board, from God's point of view. And, um, and I think that what is dangerous about that point of view is that it leads people to think that all systemic procedural um, obstacles towards um, the, de the de destination that they want to get to are somehow trivial or illegitimate and that they can just be ignored so long as you know you're going in the right direction. Um, the system is really, you know, the rules and the procedure, they're there to, to keep the other guys in check. Not us. We know what to do. We have access to the data. We believe in science. And that's, um, I think that is one of the defining features of technocracy. And it's been one of the defining attributes of, I would argue, left, um, uh, uh, left liberals of the enlightenment, right? Is this idea of the problem wasn't getting rid of a, the what problem wasn't authority and absolutism. And it was, the problem was um, the institutions that had authority um, and that were absolute were the wrong institutions. We can design the right institutions to use that power for good. That's what Woodrow Wilson believed. Believe me, I can quote you chapter and verse on that. That's what most of the progressive intellectuals believe to one extent or another. Um, it's obviously what most of the Jacobins believed. And I say that one of the epiphanies I've had in, in probably this is why, I, why I've talked about all this stuff for so long on this podcast today is that I've my entire career, I thought that for the most part, the fatal conceit is what Hayek calls it. Um, of 
you know, thinking that you can plan everything, thinking that you can have mastery, right? You know, Walter Littman used to talk about drift and mastery and that we needed, you know, experts who were masters who could control our fate, right? This whole idea of designing society from above, of moving everybody in the same direction. Um, I, my entire adult career, three books in, I've thought that this was, at least in the American political tradition, pretty much a, a wholly left-wing, left enlightenment or Marxist or progressive, right? Different flavors, whatever point of view. Um, and, you know, my whole thing about how conservatism is about comfort with contradiction, you know, this idea that you can have competing truths, competing dogmas, competing centers of power, competing institutions, um, competing identities in your own life, um, uh, competing priorities that, that, that conservatism was understanding life as a balancing test and that you couldn't have make the world perfect. You can only make it good. Um, and, and even then that's really hard, but you could at least make, you can endeavor to make the slice of it that's around your own life. Good. And, um, and the interesting thing to me is how, um, and we're work, we're just finished a draft script for Adam for this intellectual history series we're thinking about doing, um, that gets into some of this, but what's interesting to me is how the, the right is now what is called the right in American politics today, the DeSantis, right? The Trump, right? The post-liberal integralists, the nationalists, they are all turning their back on that basic idea about conservatism. They think that they have special access to God's will, or they have special access to some capital T truth about how the whole of society should be designed. And they think they have the expertise to um, implement it. And they share this attitude of the left that I have such abiding contempt for um, that the institutions that check power, the, 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 pro the procedures, the processes, the rules, those are only worth caring about when they restrict the other people. And man, do people care about it when, you know, the others, when the other side breaks the rules, everybody, you know, becomes a crazy ass constitutionalist. But when your own side breaks the rules, you're like, Oh, these are outmoded means um, they're illegitimate. They're undemocratic. Right. And to me, this is like the most remnant remnant insight is, is this horseshoe theory about how, um, big chunks of the right are joining the left are big chunks of, uh, a big chunk of right liberals are becoming left liberals. Um, some of them, yeah, are actually becoming monarchists and, you know, ultramontane Catholics and all that kind of stuff. But what basically they're doing is they are going back to an earlier form of enlightenment thinking um, that has lots of flavors and, 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 and deep cuts and call outs to pre-enlightenment thinking. But as it manifests itself in real world political arguments, you know, they're gung-ho on industrial policy and economic planning. And moreover, they're what, what makes them, you know, particularly interesting or scary right now, depending on your point of view is 
is as much as the they're into social planning as um, a cultural thing, right? They, they, they think that they know how to um, expertly move dials and doodads and levers and, and all that kind of stuff to um, design the culture from above as well. And um, I think it's all folly. And, uh, you know, anyway, what got me thinking about all this was like Charlie Cook had a, just a fantastic post about this Ezra Klein op-ed in the New York times where Klein came out against the debt ceiling um, scheme of declaring that the 14th amendment gives the president essentially the power of the purse and it would allow him to just simply pay debts without approval from Congress. You can listen on the legal side to Sarah and David talk about it. It's lawless. It's unconstitutional. It's folly. It's a power grab. It's gross. Um, but those, none of those are Ezra Klein's objections to um, the idea. His objection is that if Biden did it, it would get litigated. Right? Biden said this too. Like the problem with that idea is like, I, I think I have that power, but it would get litigated and then it would go to the courts and then the court would say it's not constitutional because it's not. And then we'd have like, a, as, as Janet Yellen has said, we'd have a constitutional crisis, but uh, for Klein and, and, and Biden, the thing is, is that it would take too long and it would, um, in Klein's argument, it would um, politically backfire because the Supreme Court would say it's unconstitutional. Now, Charlie's point is, is that why can't Klein just admit that it's unconstitutional? It's just flatly unconstitutional. It's, it's just a ludicrous argument that it's constitutional. Um, but you know, Klein comes from this very progressive tradition of we have all the answers. We know exactly what we're doing and anything that gets in our way um, is illegitimate or suboptimal or ideology, ideology driven and not, you know, um, good politics, not, 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 not good public policy. Right. It's why Tom Friedman wanted to be China for a day, just so he could implement good policy, optimal policies without any of that checks and balances and rule of law or democracy stuff getting in the way. And that's um, Ezra's argument here is like he says, you know, it'll go to Supreme Court and three conservative justices are going to say it's unconstitutional. And then that'll create problems for Biden. And Charlie's point was like, yeah, politically, you're right. It would create problems for Biden. But who gives a rat's ass about that? It's also just against the law. It is just lawless. And you know for a fact that if Trump were in office and tried this scheme, and you know he would try it if he thought it would help him, right? I mean, imagine what Trump could do dropping trillion-dollar coins into the Treasury so he could pay off his friends in various you know, demographics in perpetuity. Um, you know Ezra would immediately run to the correct constitutional argument that is unconstitutional. Um, but there's no concern about the moral hazard about like empowering future presidents, including Donald Trump, who has a non-trivial chance of being the next president of the United States from having this power. Um, and, and that's the thing is like the, the rules have to count for your own side or they're not rules. The constitution has to be for everybody or it's for nobody. And when you, and that's the real getting back to the beginning, I guess 
That's the real dethroning I worry about. If you actually convince people, which like everyone from John Fetterman and Bernie Sanders um, on down are trying to do, that the Supreme Court is illegitimate for all these stupid reasons. Um, uh, do you think the country's going to be in better shape where politicians don't think that they have to abide by Supreme Court rulings? Do you think that's going to be better for our, our national health, our social, social peace? Um, or do you think it's going to create more chaos, more warring tribes? Um, you know, the, the, the lefties who want to like get rid of the electoral college and get rid of, you know, impact the Supreme court and do all these kinds of things. Uh, they have the same problem. A lot of these guys on the right do, which is they think if they can just defeat the reigning consensus right now, you know, air quotes around consensus, right? That if they could just have one complete real victory, they would never have any more political problems and they could solve all, all of their problems in America. And that's the point. There are no permanent victories. Politics will always be there. And the conservative small C and big C correct position, as far as I can tell, is that you want to create structures and systems and expectations of our politics that put us on a steady, peaceful, safe path towards a more prosperous and, um, and more happy, good society. And, um, and the pursuit of one-time victories where you're going to settle all debts and fix all problems is inherently destabilizing. And, um, and the pursuit of it from various factions on the left and the right now is why I call this this podcast, the remnant. All right, I'm done. I apologize. I just wanted to spite some people who said I should never do this again by going along. Um, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for all the well wishes and I will see you next time. No, I'll talk to you next time. That's what I say on Fridays or Saturdays or whatever. Coffee.